Shareable is part of C-Suite Radio. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that season two is going to be absolutely incredible because in season two, I have a co-host. Co-host, say hello. Hello. That's Caroline. She's now my co-host. So season two of Shareable is going to be a little bit different. We're still talking about people and technology, but we're going to go a little bit deeper, a master class. So grab your favorite pen. And your favorite piece of paper. And get ready to take some notes because this is Shareable. Hello, hello, hello. We're here with Shareable. I'm Jeff. I'm Caroline. And uh, today, today we have a very, very exciting guest. And before we get to the guest and letting her introduce herself, I'm going to let Caroline recant a tale of how we came upon getting this (laughs) fabulous guest because it involves some very light stalking. Light light stalking. So talk to me about this. How did it come about? Uh, okay. So, well, once upon a time. I uh, love when stories start with once upon a time. <laughs> I was in a magical land called Asbury Park, uh, attending a TEDx event with a couple of my friends. And Patty was one of the speakers who spoke at the event. She did a talk on reclaiming humanity. I was captivated throughout the talk until right about the midway point when I had a realization. I had an epiphany. What was your epiphany? I was like, I got to have this lady on the show. And then I couldn't focus on anything else she said after that because I was scheming on my plan of how am I going to find this lady, introduce myself, and then get her on the show. Um, So I, I ended up searching for free coffee and thinking like maybe she'll be hanging out around the top. I know they're selling some books up there. So I was kind of like scoping out the area, waiting in the coffee line. I was standing with a friend of mine who noticed her and she said, Caroline, Patty's over there. And then she pulled me by the arm and drug me over to where she was standing. And I I proceeded to to fangirl out on Patty and say, hey, we have the show. You're an awesome. Uh, And part of my pitch was calling her a boss-ass lady to to her face, uh, which I hope charmed her rather than uh, (laughs) repulsed her. (laughs) Classic. So that's how it happened. Uh, so, so you got her contact information. I got her contact information. And and what was the subject of that email again? The subject of the email was from the girl who called you a boss ass lady today. Amazing. So, (laughs) so the usage of boss ass lady has led us to have this incredible guest who's on the line with us today. Patty. Hi. Hello there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, Patty, this I don't know if you knew the whole story of the stalking that went into place uh, to get you on this show, but just hopefully you're flattered at all of the scheming and work <laughs> that went into making sure that you could come on to this show. Absolutely. Awesome. And for Caroline, you're going to have to just take the second half of the, the TED Talk you did, and you're going to have to either send her the transcript or something, <laughs> because apparently she tuned out trying to scheme on getting you onto the show. So there are some people out there who don't actually know who you are, and for all of you that fit into that category, shame on you. But for those people, Patty, will you please do me a favor and tell them who are you and what are you all about? Well, apparently I'm a boss-ass lady. <laughs> No, no one has ever called me that before. I'd like to trademark that term. You really should. (laughs) I was quite charmed by that. Um, Good, good. This question of who are you is is one of the most profound questions (laughs) you can actually ask someone. So, um, 
You know, faced with that that question, the the first thing I always think of is the fact that first and foremost, I am a human. And what I like to do is remember of all of the things I have in common with all of the other humans on the planet. <laughs> and that's that's where it all starts. And the TED talk I gave about reclaiming humanity in the workplace, I think was really exciting for me to be able to have that opportunity because we tend to forget about it. You know, a lot of times corporate work environments just make people feel like humanity is is unwelcome. And I think I think that's a real shame. Um, but beyond that, the 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 things that make me unique, um, I think a lot of it starts with where and how I grew up. I grew up in a very, very, very small town in farm country in in North Jersey, and ultimately went on to become the CEO of a Silicon Valley company. And I can tell you that was not a direct or well-marked path. <laughs> there, <laughs> there, there were a lot of really odd experiences that that were between uh, point A and, and point B. So your high school guidance counselor wasn't like, okay, well, we have four or five jobs we think you would work for. So there's, <laughs> there's working on the farm. There's uh, CEO of Silicon Valley uh, tech firm. <laughs> didn't, didn't, go at, didn't go down like that. Exactly. Yeah. The big job, like the big job that everyone kind of coveted for the future was the manager of the supermarket that was about 15 minutes away. And so I guess, you know, I think of myself as I'm a real person. I'm a regular person who has had a lot of success in my work, in my career. And I am very, very motivated now to share all of my secrets with the world. All the things I learned on that, on that path from the small farm town to Silicon Valley. I was lucky to have a lot of people helping me. I was lucky to have an opportunity to figure things out along the way. And one of the things I realized that was an advantage for me was I kind of stuck with my humanity. There were so many times where I felt pressure to conform and people would tell me, well, you know, Patty, corporations are nasty and competitive places. And so if you want to succeed, you need to be that way too. And I just, I couldn't do it. I just could not do that. It seemed, it seemed wrong in a couple of important ways. One, it didn't seem like me, didn't seem authentic to me to be that way. But something was always nagging at me that it also seemed like a bad strategy. And I'm really glad I stuck with that because the strategy of, of leading with humanity in the workplace, in leading with humanity in in a high tech career, actually had a lot of payoff for I, me. I absolutely just want to thank you for that. <laughs> As someone who also fervently believes that you shouldn't necessarily hate coming to work, maybe even if you liked it, and if you're really lucky, <laughs> you'll love it. And I think the key component of that is always around the people. And I've never understood why to be successful in business, the common wisdom is that you have to be a dick. Like, <laughs> I don't understand why that is the case. 
why can't you just be a nice person too? It's funny. Uh, we we have um, a friend, another podcast host. They have a, a show called Nice Guys on Business. Shout out to Nice Guys. Shout out to Nice Guys. But I was just listening to uh, one of their podcasts earlier today, and and they were talking about you know bad boys versus nice guys. And, uh, and how nice guys should finish first sometimes because, you know, doing the right thing seems like it should be kind of hard to screw that person over. So, you know, just from me to you, leader to leader, thank you. <laughs> yes, yes. And, you know, it's it's tough because you do – we can all think of examples of narcissistic, egomaniac assholes who have achieved great success in business. But I'm here to tell you, you don't have to be that way if you don't want to. <laughs> there is another path to success where you can be a whole human being and a kind person and yeah. still have great success in business. Well, I love that. And I'm so glad that you've come on to take us uh, on a journey into the depths of how to go about doing that and, and why and all that sort of stuff. So let's start at the top, which is um, who are we going to help today? How are we going to... Um, who, who is the person that is listening right now that should say, this is the show for me? Well, you know, that person that you mentioned who's hating their job, <laughs> it breaks my heart to see how many people are hating their jobs. And so who I want to help today are people who are searching for more success and more satisfaction in their careers. Excellent. So go a little bit deeper. Tell me more about that. So people are looking for more success in their careers. That's a lot of people. They might be unhappy, but let's get kind of specific on it. Who do you think uh, would be the type of person that would be in that role right now? Are, are these people that are in the C-suite? Are these people that are kind of entry level just coming out of college? Are these people in the kind of middle of their career? Who specifically do you think today's episode, what we're going to talk about is most relevant to, even if it's relevant to other people? Yeah, I mean, I think this idea of being human has broad relevance to to all of those groups that you mentioned. <laughs> to all of the humans, you think? <laughs> yes, but I think in terms of in terms of this particular episode, it would be people somewhere in the middle of their career who are who are investing, like they're investing effort in their career, and they're wanting to get some gains through that effort. So it might be a mid-level manager or a new executive or or maybe even a CEO who realizes I have some improving and learning that I need to do so that I can do better. I can thrive more and be more effective in this work. Excellent. Excellent. So if if we were to help that person, um, you know, why? What, what's the outcome that we're going to give for them? If, if they go through this, they listen to the episode with you and they hear what you're all about, what do you think that's going to provide for them at the end? Well, number one, um, more, more confidence in the idea that you don't have to be an asshole if you don't <laughs> want to, um, but also some very practical ideas for how to make it better, for how to improve the way you think about your work, the way you do work and the way you build rapport and relationships with others so that you are creating a lot more forward momentum and support with your efforts instead of just that feeling like you're working really hard and you're struggling and you're just not seeing those opportunities to get ahead. I'd like people to leave with a sense that they have more control than they thought they did and they know the next five things they're going to try. Got it. Got it. Before we move on to like 
the actual nuts and bolts. Let me ask you this question because this is something that you're obviously super interested in as a person, as a professional, as part of just what your your own philosophy of management and leadership is, is, you know, this, you don't have to be a jerk, but where do you think the whole being in, like the winning by being an asshole thing even came from? Because to me, it, it seems, it just doesn't even make sense that that would come about because to me, it never occurs to me to be a jerk to get ahead. It always occurs to me that by collaborating and treating other people with respect and dignity and trying to make enjoyable workplaces and, you know, finding fun projects, all of that seems to me to make sense. It resonates. It fits in my brain. What doesn't fit in my brain is this idea of dicking people over to get ahead, doing whatever it takes to win. Like, where did this come from? So I'm, I'm just chuckling a little bit thinking of something a colleague of mine said to me once, which was, I've never met an introvert idiot. And I think that is related to this because the examples of the egomaniacs, we see them <laughs> because they're very loud and obvious about it. God, that makes and, sense. And I think... <laughs> You know, you should see the look on Jeff's face right now. It all clicked. (laughs) And then the other thing I think that that helps propagate that is I think there is a a woeful lack of help for new managers and for managers helping show them the way and teach them the value of managerial skills. And so instead, what happens is they get promoted first level manager, second level, third level, and so on. And without a deep understanding of what the managerial part of that job is, they don't know what they're supposed to do. And they think, well, I have to act more important than everybody else because I'm put up at this higher level. So that must mean I need to act impressive and I need to order people around and that sort of thing. And I think part of it comes from so many examples and the fact that there's not enough um, support to show new managers and growing managers what the good, positive things they can be contributing as a manager are. My brain is going in like a trillion directions <laughs> about all of the potential reasons, the things in people's history, the people like the nature nurture conversation about like, you know, even if you did show them like, here's the data that shows that people that are happier at work are more productive, would it even matter? Because the thing that you said that just made the most sense to me is I have to act more important. Mm -hmm. Like that whole idea that like, because I have this title, I have to let people know that I'm more important. It's like, it's almost, you, you kind of see like the, the evolution of our primal versions of ourselves just manifesting in what we believe to be like <laughs> civilized society. But really we're just like chimps beating our chests, like trying to prove that we're, you know, we're entitled to the bigger banana. Yes, there's a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. So, okay. So, so let me ask you this then. So there's there's got to be a wealth of data out there that shows, um, you know, all the things that we could talk about, about like happier workplaces, um, more respect, more collaboration, all the different things that go into it, treating people like humans instead of numbers. There's got to be tons of data by McKinsey's and the Deloitte's and all of them to show that that, that impacts. But why does companies, why do so many companies and leaders still get this wrong then? I mean, if 
Is it just that we can't help ourselves? Is it, is it the training like you alluded to? Like what is the, what is the big thing that, that we're missing? Well, I think in technology companies, it's a particularly pervasive issue because people get promoted for being brilliant about technology. Mm. You know, they're the best, they're the most knowledgeable, they're the, you know, the deepest technical thinkers, let's promote that person. And so not only do we not support them and let them know what the managerial skills that are necessary are now, we don't, as organizations, as technology organizations, value that enough. And you see people at very high levels in technology organizations that still think their job is to be the smartest one in the room. Mm. And that if they're not the most, in the detail, the most technically brilliant, no one will respect them. And they just never even value that there are other important things to do as a manager. This is interesting that you brought this up about particularly specific to technology executives, because you'd think they'd be more willing to adopt some of these newer mentalities about treating people better and increasing workplace productivity, but they're still like falling prone to the same old patterns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I have I have arguments with with technology <laughs> leaders that 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 say the managerial stuff just isn't important and and I have to be the smartest one. And they just cannot get off that position. And and to me it's it can be okay. Well let, let's get to just one quick idea here about this idea of humanity. One of the things that I hold up as a job requirement for a manager came from an email I got from someone who worked in my uh, organization when I was working at Hewlett Packard many years ago. And he sent me an email that said, Patty, when I worked in your organization, I was Superman. I felt like I could do anything. I was so motivated. You trusted me and you got all the crap out of the way and you let me do amazing work. And I've never had that experience before or since. Thank you. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a hell of an email. <laughs> just, yeah, God, hope you, know, you save that. That kind of made my decade <laughs> to, get that, to get that email from him. But then I realized, you know, that's the point, right? Mm -hmm. That's what the job of a manager should be. Yeah. The job of a manager should be to make all of your people feel like, superhero, like superheroes, and if instead you are a high-level technology manager that says, my job is to be the smartest one in the room, and you use that power for evil, <laughs> you are going to end up competing with the people who work for you. You're going to end up making them feel small. You're going to end up making them feel like they'll never be as smart as you, so why even bother? Because you're gonna fix everything and change it, and you're gonna be the only one that has the best ideas. And I see this happen over and over again. So if you are a technology um, leader, and you are the most brilliant one, that's fine. Use, use your powers for good, <laughs> but do it sort of off to the side, and make sure that you are still creating an environment where the brilliant people who work for you 
can feel brilliant and they can feel like superheroes. And you may take on a side project where you're being brilliant, but just make sure you're leaving room for them and you're not mm. competing with them. And you're doing your job to create an environment where they can really grow and thrive too. So let me ask you this, because I want to get into that. Because it, the fact that you got an email like that means that we need to, to figure out how the hell you even got there. <laughs> because I'm sure anybody that manages people that's listening to this wants an email like that. Honestly, because it, it just means your team's going to be high performing. But before we get there, there's a question I want to ask you for a few minutes now. It's been rattling around in my head, and I want to make sure that we kind of get it out in, in there so that everybody has it. But it's, it's the definition of humanity as you're using it. Because you could, you know, that, that word could have a lot of different meanings, and I think sometimes humanity, if you use some of the examples you've just given, that is humanity, and it's terrible. But you're talking <laughs> about a particular brand of humanity that, that <laughs> inspires us to be the best version of ourselves. So what do you mean when you say bringing humanity to business? Okay, first and foremost, I think that when we are at work, we need to acknowledge and respect the fact that everyone has a life outside of work that really matters, that's really important. That's, that's the first piece. The second piece is that I think we all, as individuals who go into a workplace, need to, to, to claim and hang on to our own humanity, which means knowing what is true for us, knowing what is okay and not okay for us, knowing who, who we truly are and being able to bring your, your real self to work. Mm -hmm. Because the, if you are someone that feels like the, the fun, happy, smart, creative person you are on the weekend is somehow not welcome or appropriate at work. The personality lobotomy you need to go through every Monday morning is just too painful. Uh, I can completely identify with that. I'm lucky enough to have the uh, opportunity to be my weird and interesting creative self at work. And I have friends that can't, and I just, I know how difficult it is for them to come into the office every day and just shed the like beautiful weirdness that they have to sort of undergo that change. So I don't know if we're going to get into this when we go step by step through this, because I definitely want to talk about how to build an organization like this. And maybe that's actually a good place to start, or you can tell me if this is premature, but I'd love to know, I think that we do a pretty good job internally at, at my company of creating an organization that gives people some safety to be vulnerable like that, because that's a very vulnerable thing to do, to, to ask people to be their human selves at work. We've so long been conditioned that work is not the environment, it's business. You know, it's not personal, it's business. That's like the, the sad mantra of the professional world. But um, I think it, at my company, we've tried very hard to make um, a safe environment to be that vulnerable, to bring your humanity, to be your weird self. And then we kind of try to course correct around the way. But are we going to talk a little bit today about how organizations can go about creating a space where people do feel that freedom to be their human selves, to have all the things that you just described and, and speak up for that? Yeah, I, I think what I what I would like to do in kind of getting back to one of your earlier um, questions as well is is share how I created that type of organization and some of the things that are, are possible and necessary to do to make people feel welcome as their, as their whole self at work. Awesome. <laughs> that makes me happy. 
Okay. Well, then let's go into it. T- take us, where do we start? So I think where where I would like to start is first to to pick up on and finish the thread we talked about, about the super smart manager um, competing with their with their with their people. And I think this is this is also at the heart of people acting self-important and the kinds of things that we just need to to dismantle and put back together again. And I was very lucky to learn this in my own career in in a moment where I had a choice to make. I was working at Hewlett Packard and we had organized our division that when I got there, it was a set of business units and it was too small to be a set of business units. So the general manager decided to just make one business unit and he asked me, Patty, do you want to be the marketing manager or do you want to be the R&D manager? And at that moment, I had been in marketing for several years. My my degree, by the way, is in electronic engineering and computer science. Okay, what? girl. <laughs> <laughs> Okie dokie. New factor. Did not know that one. All right. New um, context. But, but as a human... As as a human, I migrated um, into an area that was more true for me, which was not the guts of the technology, but the guts of the business. I, that was the that was the right place for me. So I had been in marketing for many years, but I knew that I aspired to be a general manager and a CEO one day. And so I thought, let me um, take the R&D job because that will round out my experience more than than just taking another marketing job. Now, that turned out to be either the most brilliant strategy of my life or good luck. <laughs> Not sure which one. Um, but the reason I say that is because in that marketing environment, I was one of the most talented, knowledgeable marketing people in that entire group. And if I had taken the marketing manager job, I would have been very tempted to jump in and do all the bad things I talked about before, you know, telling people their work wasn't good enough, fixing it, being the smart one, having the one with all the most important ideas, setting the agenda. And it would have been really tempting because I was an expert. But when I took the R&D manager job, I was so out of date as an engineer that there was no way I could replicate any of the jobs in my organization. I simply did not know how to do any of those jobs. And so at first it was a little bit scary because I thought, will these people respect me? Mm. You know, if I'm not as smart as they are, will they respect me? but I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. And the beautiful thing was, because it was entirely impossible for me to jump in, I had to very quickly figure out what the job of a manager is. I was ambitious. I wanted to add a lot of value. And I had to figure out what do managers do to add value instead of doing the same work their team is doing. And in the beginning, I was I was quite 
scared because I wasn't exactly sure what to do. Like I knew generally the direction I wanted to go and generally the problems that the organization needed to solve, but I didn't have anything that was like a clear operating plan for what I was actually going to do. And my boss at the time, who was also a good mentor for me, said to me, Patty, talk to everyone and you'll know what to do. And he meant that literally, and I took it literally. So what I did is I scheduled 150 one-on-one -on -one meetings for my first two weeks on the job. And I talked to every single person and I asked them, what do you think? What do you think is important here? What's working well? What are the problems you think we need to solve? What do you think is important? What do you think? And I listened. And I can tell you, after those 150 meetings, I knew what to do. I mean, I absolutely knew exactly what to do in that job. And, and I had 150 people who were motivated to go help me do it because I had respected their humanity. I had asked them, what do you think? And so I learned that there were all kinds of disconnects in the organization. There were misunderstandings. There were good managers um, that worked for me. There were bad managers. There were duplicate efforts. There were things that were broken. There was a lot of processes that needed to be created. And I never would have learned any of that if I didn't have those conversations. And I never would have had those conversations if I was being the technical expert. Like if I thought my job was to just be the smartest one in the room, I would have skipped those 150 conversations and I never would have learned what my job was. So instead I focused on communication. I focused on process. I focused on getting the organization restructured. I focused on getting the resources applied in, in the right places. I focused on getting support for our team with other organizations that was lacking. These are the things that a manager needs to be doing. And I felt so lucky that I had an opportunity to learn that so quickly instead of falling into the trap of trying to prove how smart and important I was by being the smartest one in the room. That's brilliant. There's like so many jewels in that. I mean, the, the it you when you said that you talked to 150 people, my first thought is like, what a better way, there's like no better way I can think of to make those 150 people feel important than to literally be letting them design where you go and what, what is important as a result of their input. So I think that's brilliant. The, the question that I want to follow up with for you is, um, do you think that having that beginner's mind to go in there not knowing the answers gave you maybe some humility and empathy for people who might be in your organization, who might be in a similar position, maybe at a lower, lower position in the company, but in a similar emotional position of not necessarily knowing and needing to figure it out? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I hope so. And, and I think that when you set that kind of example, it really, it really pays off. I know I learned that from watching my boss do it. When I was at a Silicon Valley startup company, I was running marketing and my boss was the CEO. And occasionally he would invite in a guest star, some you know well-known person in Silicon Valley to sit with our staff. And our whole staff would be in there, the CEO and this, this guest expert. And the CEO would say, you know, we're really having problems. We don't know how to position our product. What do you think? 
And the first time I heard that, I was just I was just staggered. It's like he doesn't need to act smart and important either in front of his staff or in front of the visiting guest star. It's more important for him to be open and get really high valuable conversation going than to act important. And that gave me permission to do that forever after. So I certainly hope that my doing that has given others that same permission. It sounds like this is a really big, um, like there's sort of like the leading upward and the leading downward conversations. It sounds to me like a lot of this is very much a leading downward sort of thing. Like when, when you have a hierarchy in the organization, that it's the leadership that's and their willingness to be open and vulnerable that opens it up for those beneath them. Because it seems like it would be really hard to do this as a leading upward sort of scenario where like you might be, you know, an entry level employee and, and you try being open and vulnerable. That could be a really terrifying position if your leadership hasn't set the freedom for you to be able to do it kind of in your example you said it it gave you the feeling like you could do that yeah i think i think that's i think that's very true and and when you are where you are stuck in an environment where your humanity is just not valued um you have a choice to make and and a lot of times early in our career it's necessary to make a choice, to make an investment. I need to build my experience base. So I am going to stick this out, even though it feels uncomfortable for me, to gain experience so that I can advance, I can get a promotion, and then maybe someday I can act differently. That's kind of the path I took. At any point in time, you can make a choice of, is it worth it to be paying dues in this situation, because I'm getting valuable experience, I'm getting valuable building blocks out of it, or am I being so tortured that it's just too damaging for me and I better make a change now? Got it. I mean, as an entrepreneur, I, I've just always believed I'm just going to go do my own thing. Right. <laughs> I, I, to me, it was never a, a real strong internal conversation. I was just right. kind of like, right. yeah, paying dues. I don't know about all that. He's going to cut the line. <laughs> Not doing this. Not doing it at all. All right. So tell me more about how you went about creating. So so you, you get this R&D job. You go around and talk to 150 people you start learning exactly what it is that you're supposed to do. How'd you keep that momentum going? How'd you keep those people engaged? How'd you keep the humanity in the business? Were, were there forces within the business otherwise that were trying to get you to destroy that humanity <laughs> or, or sub, suppress it or you know anything like that? Talk to me a bit more about what happened next. Yeah, so, so one of the things that that facilitates creating that sort of culture and environment is just the ongoing way that you interact with your organization. So I couldn't continue to have 150 one-on-one -on -one meetings <laughs> on any kind of, on any kind of regular basis. So that was a, that was a beginning thing that I did. But as I, as I moved forward, one of the things that I realized, I had read an article once that said, people are more productive after they laugh. And I thought, I really like that. That's something that just resonated with me. And so when I would have staff meetings, in the first 10 minutes 
or 20 minutes of the staff meeting, which might have been like a 90 minute meeting, I would just start with humanity. And, you know, who had something funny happen to them this weekend? Who has a joke to tell? The goal was laughter. This and if I could get I love my staff so laughing, then we could just lock in and be super productive after that. And what was interesting is I would oh, I was always a believer in um, fostering cross-organizational communications. And one of the really easy ways to do that that requires like zero time and effort is to just invite someone from another organization to come to your staff meeting and just, Hmm. they sit there and listen and suddenly pretty deep cross-functional knowledge transfer has happened. But these people would come into my staff meeting and they'd sit there watching us telling jokes and laughing for, for 10 or 15 minutes. And they'd have this look on their face, like, what is going on here? Like, what are you people doing? This is insane. And then we would just lock in and we would get down to business. And at the end of it, they'd say, that has got to be the most productive staff meeting I have ever attended. Thank you for letting me sit in on that. And it happened over and over and over again. And when you get people laughing, that's just another thing that's saying, I respect the fact that you're a human. We are not work robots. And the more that we can you know, feel camaraderie and feel comfortable laughing together, the better we're going to work together. And it absolutely proved to be true. Oh God, you're awesome. I'm so (laughs) one. I'm just, I'm stealing that. We're so just note. You've got that right. A note on that. We're doing that. I think we do it. I mean, we do it, but like, I think we need, like, I think that should be like a plan thing. Like, and not only that, but you've just honestly validated me that like we goof around so much at the beginning and during everything that, um, and they, and we crush a pretty decent amount of work for a small team. So, wow. So that's where that comes from. Yeah. Awesome. Score. Yep, good for you. Yeah. So, okay. You're freaking awesome. That's, that's amazing. He's like wistfully staring yeah. out the window of our like, studio contemplating everything. What a great idea. Um, okay. So start with laughter. Good one. Like that. Love it. Uh, so let me, let me tell you about another, another moment. Um, where I got the biggest job of my career, where I was running a, excuse me, a billion dollar software organization at HP. I got that job when I was 35. I was way too young to have that job. Um, All of the people who reported to me were way older than me. And one of them also competed for the job that I ended up winning. Yeesh, that was fun, I'm sure. Not at all awkward. (laughs) And um, what happened was at the beginning, of course, I was, again, afraid and concerned and thinking, how will these people respect me being so young um, and not having as much experience in this business as they did? You know, they had all been in this business for years and I was stepping in as the new as the new general manager. And what happened was just like in the first example I gave you when I figured out I have to learn how to be a manager and I was afraid they would think I, was, I wasn't I was credible. Just like in the first example I gave when I stepped into that R&D management role and was afraid that they would think I wasn't credible and I figured out how to be a manager, at the end of that, their feedback on me was, Patty's the best manager we ever had. 
which was, you know, wonderful for me, but also reinforced the lesson that managerial work actually is really valuable. So when I got to this really big job, I did the same thing. I didn't, I didn't have 3,000 one-on-one meetings, <laughs> um, but I You'd did. still be having one-on-one meetings. <laughs> I did spend the first three or four weeks doing reviews of some kind to get input from pretty much every team on the planet, you know, all over the world, the sales teams, the manufacturing teams, the support and service teams, all of the internal organizations, all of the sites. I had an opportunity where, you know, everyone in every group would have an opportunity to tell me what they think. Um, And I also spent a lot of one-on-one time with my direct reports. And I made no pretense of the fact that they were smarter than me about this business. And I said to each one of them, you know, I'm new here. Here is where I think we need to take the business. Here is what my strategy is. But I need to understand from you what's important. You know, what are the what are the things that are really working that we need to invest in? And what are the things that are really broken that we need to fix? And I just spent a lot of time really listening. And once again, not only were people okay with reporting to me, they really liked it. And for the longest time, like in fact, it was years later that I thought, how on earth did I pull that off? I still wasn't, I wasn't totally getting it. But the one man who I mentioned that competed for the same job and I had to re-recruit back into my organization, he and I are actually really good friends now. And I, I recently asked him, you know, what was that like for you? How, how did this work? Like, how, how did I get away with that? Why did you, why did you stay? And he said to me, Patty, you made it very easy to help you. And, and what you gave me was an enormous job with a ton of responsibility and you made it easy for me to help you. And I still had a really wonderful, challenging job in that organization. And once again, wouldn't you know it, respecting people's humanity was the thing that worked. I can't wait to see the show notes for this. <laughs> Jeff is literally taking yeah, notes on it, our Google Talk Make it right easy now. for people to help you. <laughs> it's dynamite. I, yeah, because I, I can see that as being exceptionally awkward. Um, but it, what went through my head as you were talking about that was just that you're like the 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 humility that you approached it with the lack of ego the don't i'm not going to crush you with my brilliant ideas but like i want you to be part of this it's so collaborative it's so open it's so vulnerable that it would be hard for someone to kind of crap all over that because i think part of it would go through my head is if if i had a manager like that if i had a leader like that and they were so open and so willing to take suggestions my initial thought would be well if i act like a jerk and try and oust this person and they put someone else in this person's place <laughs> that person might be a tyrant and an awful and at least this person is humble enough to take my suggestions and and work with me and you know it could be a lot worse and I actually really like this person. <laughs> yeah, it would co- it would <laughs> like energize that, me. Yeah, I mean I mean I can imagine the amount of affinity that operating like that can create um, by not squashing people's ideas, not putting them on defensive or making them wrong ever, just embracing them and appreciating them. So I I love this approach. Yeah, and then and then the other thing I did just to sort of finish off this part of the story is. 
I took some time to create a plan. Even after I thought I knew what the answer was, I embarked on a on a business planning, a business strategy exercise that and I put a calendar to it so that people would know when the new strategy was going to be announced. And I did a lot of work, a lot of highly visible work to get input before that. So instead of just saying, here's the strategy, I need you to do it now. I had an opportunity to say, here's the strategy I'm thinking about. Give me your feedback. You know, what do we need to believe in order to succeed at this strategy? You know, am I missing something? And by doing that, that gave the whole organization an opportunity to get themselves ready to get on board. And I think that was that's another one of those those things that's important to create that superhero environment is creating some time and space for people to have really good, just real conversations, human conversations about, okay, if this is the strategy, how do we feel about that? What's scary about this? What's important about this? What are the risks? What do we need to be prepared for? Instead of just shoving a strategy down everyone's throat and saying, okay, go. Yeah, and, and the other thing that I love about that is that you invited them to participate, which means if they don't do it, they, they really can't say anything about it. And, and if they do take part in it, they now have a stake in it because they're part owner in that idea. It's not your idea that they have to accept. It's part their idea that they are invited to embrace. And I think that that's such a different uh, way of doing it. And you can still be and, – and I would actually argue – here's something that's bold. I'm going to make a bold statement. <laughs> I would say you are the smartest person in the room to – Take an approach like that to let people because you're going to get more buy-in on the idea at the outset. And what good is an idea if you can't get people to buy in and execute it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, so if you are super smart, use your powers for good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surrounded by little figurines of Spider-Man in my studio. So <laughs> clearly I believe that with great power comes great responsibility. Yes. So I'm yes. with you. Yes. 100%. So I, I want to go back to the, to the first organization and talk about another aspect of humanity and creating an organization where people can feel like superheroes. And, and that was something that so so something about me that is kind of bizarre as a technology business leader for so many years is that I don't like technology and for a long time I thought I that kind of scared me like I thought I was going to get found out and people are you know I, you're a fraud you know how could you be a technology business leader and and not like technology and what I realized is I was actually able to, to use that, that truth for me. That was part of who I authentically was. I was not excited about the guts of the technology in the slightest. I was able to use that to create some real value in the business because at that point in time, many years ago, technology didn't work. Like it just, it wasn't like you had an iPad or the internet or something that was pleasurable to use. If you were using technology, you had to really work at it because in the beginning, technology just didn't work that well. And that's one of the main reasons I didn't like it. And so I actually, in that situation, our product that we were building and delivering 
was particularly bad. It was <laughs> it was particularly bad to install it and to get it working initially. It could take weeks <laughs> by, by the time the product came into your company to be up and running and using it successfully. And so what I did was I, I went back to this, this humanity idea and I said, we have to make this product easier to use. And first and foremost, we need to make this product easier to install because the install was just embarrassing. And I would go to the engineers and say, we need to make this product easier to install. And they would look at me um, triumphantly and say, we already know about all those problems. They are logged in our bug system. They are priority 17 level bugs, and we'll get to them after we finish all the priority one and two and three and four and so on, which meant they're never going to fix the install because it wasn't something they personally cared about. And so my job was to get them to fix the install, but ordering them to fix the install wasn't the best way to accomplish that. So instead, I got airplane tickets for a handful of the engineers, and I sent them to go on sales calls with the people demoing the product, and they personally got embarrassed at how bad the install was, and they came back and they fixed it without ever saying another word. <laughs> oh my God. That's just like I... deviously brilliant. <laughs> Right, but it's humanity, right? They, they, yeah. they. I put them in the situation where they could experience the pain mm -hmm. of the customer and the sales engineer, and they, they realized I gotta fix this. And they didn't come back and say, "I need more resources. I need more time. I need to delay something else." They just fixed it, and <laughs> and then I went on to um, create a new agenda in this organization that I referred to. I stole a tagline from one of the consumer products divisions. And I use the tagline of fun in 15 minutes. And everybody thought I was totally insane. And they're like, Patty, you know how hard it is to get started with our product. No one is ever going to be able to get started in 15 minutes. And it's never going to be fun. <laughs> so, so, but I stuck with it and, and Again, by tapping into such a human goal, a human measure, it wasn't improved quality. It wasn't improved customer satisfaction metrics. It wasn't some singular, dry, non-human measure. Everybody has an idea of what fun is. And the beautiful thing that happened there was by picking, picking a measure that humans could feel as a measure, not only did it get us on a course to get quite close to that, but it required people from every organization to work together hmm. because it wasn't just an engineering problem. It included the documentation, you know, the tech writers, the licensing, the legal department, the people who did package design, the marketing department, sales, everybody had a role to play. And what I've learned over time is that when you pick a goal that has something human at the core, you also automatically solve the cross-functional communication problem without overworking it because it just becomes necessary. And you start having an organization where real conversations happen 
and real conversations is what becomes so motivating and is one of the biggest things that make people feel like superheroes. I think there's an underlying thread here. <laughs> and I want that's where I want to actually take this for us to wrap on. First, I want to say, though, that when you said you bought them all plane tickets, my first thought, I thought you were going to go that you sent them on vacation to Hawaii <laughs> yeah, or something. Too. I was like, <laughs> everything you've said so far has been so, like, cuddly and wonderful that I'm like, what did she do for these engineers? <laughs> Just put them up in a spa for a week? <laughs> that's where I swear that's where I thought you were going. And then it took this turn, which actually I'm so glad it did, to actually something that is brilliant a little devious, but in like a really positive spun way where that's an example of you making them confront the human issue here, the human issue with the technology. And you did it in a way where you didn't have to order them or pull rank on them, but in a way where you let them get to experience and empathize with the people that they're supposed to be helping in the first place. And the tactic that you took to do it is something that a lot of people might not think to do. And what I really want to know is as sort of the point for us to wrap up on that I think is actually going to be what will give the entire episode context is that you have a particular way of thinking. And I want to know how, what is that process look like? The way that you look at a problem, the way that you assess a situation, there is an element there that, that you call humanity. But there's a process behind that that you look at a problem, you look at an issue, and you think, I can solve this by appealing to people's humanity. What does that look like? How are you breaking these scenarios down that in each case you're able to find the human element, whether it's making people laugh at the beginning of a meeting or whether it's sending the engineers to go and experience what the salespeople go through or whatever those things are, there is something there that you're tapping into and I need to know what it is. So I actually wrote a book about this. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Go buy the book, everyone. That's the answer. That, that answers this question. My book is called Move. Um, and all of the letters in the word move stand for part of that framework that you're looking for. And each one incorporates this idea of humanity in a particular way. So, so briefly, M stands for the middle. What I mean by that is that every program, every project, every strategy shares the fact that there's a lot of investment and excitement and energy at the beginning, leading up to the kickoff, all of the planning, all of the ideas, all of that investment, there's a lot of it. And then the goals at the end are typically really well-defined and there's a lot of excitement about the goals at the end. But what all those programs and projects share is a middle <laughs> and the middle is often entirely undefined and after the kickoff you just embark and there tends to be a stall at some point and the reason there tends to be a stall is that because humans are not good at keeping focused on something for a long time six months a year however long your your program is guilty as charged so, <laughs> And so in the book, I give lots of advice about how to keep people um, focused, engaged, knowing where they are so they don't feel lost in the middle and they feel safe to keep working on the new hard stuff to get it done. So there's a real human element that some of the examples I gave, like, like fun in 15 minutes, are so necessary to define a course through the middle. O stands for organization. 
and there is no antidote for the wrong team. And the analogy I like to use for an organization is a, is a dog sledding team. And I have a story about my experience dog sledding in the book. Um, I'll, I won't tell the whole story here, but just imagine that you're on a dog sledding team in a race and one of the dogs decides to sit down. <laughs> you aren't going anywhere. <laughs> right? you know, so you might have a dog running in the opposite direction. You might have a dog that just likes to get all the ropes tangled up by going back and forth a lot. You might have a dog that is making a good show of it, just running fast enough to like they're doing the work, but they're actually not pulling any of the weight, right? So I offer a lot of advice about how to build the right team. And one of the things that I think so many leaders miss is that they think their job is to make do with the team they have instead of to build the team they need. And so the job is you need to build the team you need that is fit for whatever purpose you are trying to do. And there's a lot of humanity that comes into to doing that the right way. Um, v is for valor because it's scary, right? And that's where I always respect the humanity of the leader themselves. In my positions of leadership, I was always scared. Doing new things is scary. And as leaders, we need to find ways to make people feel safe and comfortable to do the new scary things we need them to do. And then E is for everyone. And what I mean by that is you can't do a transformation from the top. You can lead from the top, but if you want change to happen, you need the people doing the work to actually be doing the new things. And this is another place where, where respecting and acknowledging the power of humanity becomes a real superpower for the leader. Because if you can really get everyone engaged and motivated to be moving forward, then you can really go someplace. I think a lot of leaders make the mistake of announcing the strategy and then hoping the team is going to go do it. So I talk about how to change the idea of communicating a strategy top down into creating a conversation in all directions that really gets everyone engaged at a very real human way so that you can actually get and, and keep the thing moving. So that is my um, structure that you asked about, and I've put it all in a book that's called Move. It's awesome. We're going to put the book in the show notes for reals. I know you have another book. We're going to put that in there as well, but um, you have been nice enough to set aside time and let me fall completely head over heels in love with your brain uh, <laughs> and your heart uh, because you can't really do what you do without both of them. But I'd like to now give you this point in the show to talk about whatever it is that you're working on, you want to let people know about, promote anything that you're working on. This is your time to shine. Don't be shy. You've given people a just unbelievable amount of value at this point. So if just go nuts, talk about what you're working on <laughs> and f seriously, people out there listening, go and support Patty. She is just killing it. Yeah. Both of her books. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. This has been such a fun conversation. Um, and I'm, I'm really pleased to be able to talk about these things. So in terms of the kinds of things I'm working on and, and how you can find me and benefit from those things, there's as an individual, there are a few things I can point you to. One is my website, azarellogroup.com. 
you can sign up for my blog. I write an article every week about the kind of things that we're, we're talking about here on, on today's show. I also have two books. One is called Move, which is about helping organizations execute. And the other one is called Rise, which is about helping individuals uh, advance your career. So those two things are available. And I also have a membership program, which is focused on professional development, where it's basically like getting me as your mentor. I do a webinar every month, and every month I do a coaching hour conference call, and I share lots of information, and there's opportunities for you to personalize the program and get some direct advice and feedback for me. And you can find that again on my website at azarellogroup.com and just click on the membership tab. And I love this program because I, I love to help. And then finally, um, there are two types of work I do with corporations and I'm really excited about both of them. One of them is a program I call Strategy Into Action, which is where I actually help executive leadership teams go through the MOVE model and we help put your strategy into action and I help get your organization on board and, and working to move your strategy forward. And then I also have a whole set of professional development programs that are focused at mid-level managers, helping them understand how the role changes as they pursue their career and want to advance to executive levels. And I really, in those programs, focus on those very high value managerial things we've been talking about that really embrace the idea of humanity. Amazing. You have been such a fabulous guest, and I am so glad that Caroline stalked you. <laughs> so glad. This, so has been, this has been so fantastic. Um, you and I would definitely connect offline. I want to tell you about the leadership book that I'm writing. I think you have to write like a guest passage in it or something. I don't know. We'll, we'll talk, but we're, right. we're officially best friends. Um, that just happened. There's really nothing you can do about it. But um, I think this episode has been fantastic. I think you are undoubtedly a boss-ass lady. And if I had to say that this episode was anything, Caroline, what would I say it is? I'd say it was shareable. There are a few thank yous and shout outs in order. First, I'd like to thank Ray Bueno for all of that sexy production value and a quick thank you to me for producing the show. I'd like to send a shout out to DJ Quads for the use of our theme song, Always, and A. Himitsu for the use of our outro song, Adventures. You can follow Jeff on Twitter at jgibbard and you can follow me at Caroline Sohn. You can follow the show at shareable underscore pod and just at shareable podcast on everything else. That means Facebook, Instagram, everything. You can email us at sharablepodcast at gmail.com or subscribe to our email list at sharablepodcast.com slash subscribe. Do all the things. Subscribe to the show. Leave us a rating. Review us on iTunes. Tell a friend. Tell your mom. I don't know. She might like it. <laughs>